and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Now, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Please be seated. Why would a loving God let bad things happen to good people? This is what the world asks when a loved one dies, when disaster and difficulty strike. But the real question should be this. Why would a holy God let good things happen to bad people? Because everyone who comes into this world is a bad person. That is, someone who is tainted by sin, someone who is in rebellion against God. The scriptures make this very clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. David cries out, from, from the womb, I was, I was sinful. In sin, I was conceived, says David. All men come into the world, sinners in rebellion against a holy God and deserving nothing more than eternal hell. Yet God is good to us. And he provides life and breath, food and clothing and many other blessings. And all this God does for all men, not just a select number. Why does God do this? Because God is love. He loves his creatures. And furthermore, in his love, God sent his son to be the savior of the world. And if we will begin to enter more greatly into this mindset to truly believe what Scripture says about the love of God, then we will be able to accomplish the work of God in the world to a greater extent. To the extent that we do not love, and to the extent that we do not love the world, even our enemies, and really by definition the world, that is the ungodly world, they are our enemies. Because if we love Christ, Christ was clear that the world will hate us they hated him, they'll hate us. So really, essentially, everyone that doesn't know Christ is in the realm of our enemy. And until we learn to love them as God loved them, we will not enter into the evangelistic task with a kind of fervor that is necessary. We will be halting, fearful, and our church will not be the city on the hill. It will not be the salt of the earth that Jesus has already challenged us to be in Matthew chapter 5. There's no, it, it's, there's no accident that Jesus ends with his really six examples of how our righteousness should, should exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees by talking about love, the foundational principle necessary for all righteousness. 
There is, no, there is no righteous action. There is no true obedience that is not driven out of love. And so instead of a mentality which drives us to remove ourselves from the world, protecting ourselves from its ravages and holding on till Christ returns, we need the mindset of Christ. And what was his mindset? That he laid aside the glory of heaven, to descend down into the sin and chaos of this world because of his great love for the Father and his great love for mankind. If we are to love our neighbor and love our enemy, then we must engage with a sin-cursed world to bring the love of God to bear through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And no, I'm not talking about a, a cultural conformity that takes hold of the sins of the world and delights in them as some means of loving them. That's exactly the opposite. That is not how Jesus came. He did not come delighting in the sins of the culture and seeking to make himself look just like the culture or to entertain the culture that he might be able to win it. But he did come loving the culture, loving those within it and interacting with those within it in the, in, at the deepest levels, eating with them, living with them, moving and breathing amongst them. That is what Jesus did. And if we remove ourselves from that in our little enclaves of, of security and safety, then we are the opposite of the heart of Jesus. We do not live for protection. We live for proclamation. And certainly there's protection to be had. There are things that we are careful of in our world, and rightfully so. But oftentimes not to the extent that we take it, in which unfortunately certain realms within our Christian communities have taken it. But somehow it is best to never expose ourselves to the world as though we might be tainted by it. Now that's possible. But if we are true believers, then our goal is to not be tainted by the world, but to bring holiness and the proclamation of the gospel to a dying world. They will not hear it any other way. Jesus is not going to come again to proclaim the gospel. He is going to come again to proclaim judgment. We are left to proclaim the gospel. And if we do not love the world, we will not do this. So what we'll see this morning is that only when kingdom citizens begin to understand, appreciate, and partake of the love of God in Christ, will they be able to fulfill the command to love their neighbor, which includes their enemies? Again, only when kingdom citizens begin to understand, appreciate, and partake of the love of God in Christ, will they, they be able to fulfill the command to love their neighbor, which includes their enemies. Now, in our text, we are really working through a sixth illustration or sixth correction that Jesus brings to the so-called righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He said that our righteousness as those who are in the kingdom is to exceed theirs, uh, that is the greatest religious leaders of the day who were not truly righteous at all. They had a standard that they had developed which was not a truly godly standard. And so Jesus in each of these six examples brings the proper biblical corrective Pharisees say this, you have heard that it was said, but I say this to you. And again, no accident that he ends with this particular example. They had perverted, the Pharisees had, even the law of love. And fundamentally, they had turned the law of love into a law of hatred, that they could essentially hate everyone around them except a very small select group that they were sure were already in the kingdom. And that, of course, included them. It began with them. And it did not extend very far out from who they were. Everyone else, you know, those in their very small circle were neighbors. Everyone else were enemies. And therefore, they could say this perversion in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And last week, we looked at how they might have gotten that twisted nature out of the first part of that, which is a command in Scripture, Leviticus 18, and then all throughout the New Testament, that is to love neighbor. Well, 
they most likely had perverted, well, certainly had perverted the teaching even of the Old Testament that speaks over and over of loving your enemy. Job speaks of the necessity of loving those and, and not of who were his enemies and not rejoicing in their, in their hurt. David gives a, a passionate example of how when his enemies were sick, he, he took them food, he prayed for them, he, he grieved for them, and yet when he was sick or harmed, they, they tried to harm him further. So clearly that's already in the Old Testament, but the Pharisees overlooked that to say you should hate your enemy. Additionally, they had perverted the view of what a neighbor was, remember. Remember the scribes and Pharisees, they knew that love was the basis of the law. They knew that love was supposed to drive their actions. And when Jesus asked them those questions, they say, yeah, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But you remember the, the slick scribe who says, the lawyer who says, yeah, but who's my neighbor? Because he knew he had a very small definition of it, so he wants to make sure that Jesus agrees with him. He says to justify himself. And Jesus goes, um, let me tell you who your neighbor is. Your neighbor essentially is everyone. And oh, by the way, that includes the Samaritans whom you hate. In fact, the Samaritan who came along the road to care for the, the Jewish man who was hurt when the Levite and the priest walked right by. The Samaritan was acting as the neighbor, and in fact, they're Samaritans, and everyone that they came in contact with were their neighbors, not just Jews, not just those who lived according to the Pharisaical additions to the law and the Pharisaical tradition. So they perverted the view of neighbor to a very small group of people. Yeah, I love the people who look a lot like me who are Jews living just like I live. Now, again, we need to be very careful. We talked about this last week. That tends to be our view of who we love. They look like us. They act like us. They go to our church. They do the things we do. They agree with us all perfectly doctrinally, all of those things. Only they are the people that we truly love. Well, we would say differently, but very often we don't live differently. Now, also, they had, perverted, they had a perverted view of God's hatred of sin. We touched on that last week. We'll flesh it out a little bit more this week. God does hate sin. And ultimately, he hates sinners. He hates those who sin, but not with some kind of twisted, personal despising of them, where, where he, he looks at them and he says, you're nothing, you're, you're worthless, I hate you. Not that kind of hate, with a judicial hatred which says, you violated my commands, that's your very character. And so in that judicial way, in his righteousness, he hates their sin, and he ultimately sends sinners to eternal hell but not with any kind of vindictive, personal enmity towards them as though somehow they were worthless, as though somehow they were only worthy to have, to have, to have anger poured out upon them. That is not God's hatred at all. And so then Jesus brought the corrective. We began this last week. So if you glance back again to verse 44, but I say to you, says Jesus, love your enemies. The place where they ended, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, Jesus starts. No, no, flips it around, love your enemy. And by the way, that works all the way back to loving your neighbor. It's not just love your enemy and hate your neighbor. <laughs> he didn't reverse it. Loving your enemy means love everyone. That's what we said. There is no one who falls outside the boundaries of the love of a believer. For an unbeliever, his or her love always is carefully bounded. It's only an echo of the true love of God anyway. And even at that, it is carefully bounded to the group of people that serve them, that help them, that do what they do. But for the, before, that's for the unbeliever. For the believer, the, the love that we have is boundless, going all the way down to our enemy. And remember that Jesus took it one step further to the greatest of enemies, the enemy who is actually harming you. There's all different kinds, right? People that don't like us, people that gossip about us. There's also people that would want to kill us. Now, that doesn't happen as much in our country today. It happens in many places in the world. 
And even when it comes to that, the true love of neighbor, as it were, will flesh itself out in the love of an enemy, even the one who is nailing you to a cross or stoning you to death, that the true test of our love of enemy is found at the greatest point of hurt. And we looked at two examples last week of Jesus who cried out while he was on the cross, Father, forgive them. And Stephen, who died being crushed to death by the stones of those who hated him, crying out, don't hold this sin against them. Which, by the way, very likely was one of the major means that God used in the salvation of whom? Saul, who was the one holding the cloak and watching him die. And then when he is assaulted by Christ on the road to Damascus, you must know that going through his mind as Jesus speaks to him is, Stephen, do not hold this sin against them. We said what loving your enemy doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you don't confront them in sin, that you don't bring consequences to bear for the actions of those who are evil or unrighteous. <clears throat> Excuse me. It doesn't mean that you allow them to bring harm on your family indiscriminately or harm innocent people. That's not what love of neighbor means. It doesn't mean that you invite every enemy to be your best friend, that you draw close to them. That's not what, it's not that kind of love. It's a love that brings the truth to bear, that, that brings all the scriptural, proper scriptural principles into play when interacting in relationship. And it doesn't mean that you affirm or love the sinner as a sinner. That is, you love his sin. What it means is that you love him as a child of God or as a creation of God, as one whom God has poured out love upon, one whom God has created and whom God himself loves. And then we said what it does mean in the biggest sense, again, is that no one is excluded from being loved, enemies and persecutors, and that that love always includes, therefore, a, a proclamation of the gospel as its driving purpose. Because there is no love apart from there. For God so loved the world that he emoted towards the world, felt really good about the world, had, had, had affection. No, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The goal of God's love is the gospel, is, is proclaiming the gospel and, and, and demonstrating the reality of the gospel in his own life. And we are to do the same. In this is love, says First John, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There you have it, the wrath-bearing sacrifice. That's what love does. And this is love, not that we love God. And then it goes on to say, and whoever, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That is, our love is also gospel-centered. It is always driven by, directed towards the living and proclamation of the gospel. That may certainly mean feeding someone building them a home, getting them some water that they can drink. It may certainly have, have to do with that, but that's never the end goal. Always the goal is to demonstrate the love of Christ by proclaiming the reality of what Jesus has done. And now let's move on to the outline and discuss the reason for this love. So why is it that we should love enemies? This needs to be grounded in God himself, right? And the Pharisees were already essentially saying, we picked that up, that God didn't love sinners, that he didn't love enemies. That was their justification. Look, the Old Testament says, I hate those who hate you, Psalm 139. So they were essentially proclaiming that God does not love sinners. He does not love essentially anyone that isn't a Jew. He hates them all. And only, the only good things that happen to them are because he's somehow blessing his people. Does that sound familiar to you? Sounds like hyper-Calvinistic, overly reformed theology is what it sounds like. And it's wrong. God's benefits and blessings towards those who are unbelievers are not merely byproducts of his love for the elect. 
It is an active working of his love towards them, as this scripture will prove. And it's essential that you do away with that while keeping the nature of God's election and God's predestination and God's sovereignty and salvation. You hold all of that and get rid of the baggage because it's not scriptural baggage. And that's what we're about to prove. And that's what Jesus does. There's several things that he's going to demonstrate And really the primary one, the reason that we love our enemies is because God loves his enemies and we are to look like our father. That's exactly what he says in the text and and shocking to them. Again, it would have been shocking. They would have said God does not love enemies and so we shouldn't either. Jesus is saying God does love his enemy and so are you. You are to do the same because he says so that here's, I mean, when you see a so that in the text, here's the reason. Here's the purpose statement. Why should you love your enemies? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. The context here is loving of enemies. There's no way to around the idea that God loves his enemies and that we are to be ones who reflect our father by loving our enemies, loving those who hurt us, who are in rebellion against God himself and harming us. So the reason for love is to demonstrate sonship. And notice it says that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, certainly making a distinction between earthly fathers and heavenly, your heavenly father, and also raising, reminding us who this is. This isn't just an earthly father you're supposed to emulate. And in fact, maybe even striking a bit of a blow at the Pharisees who really held who is their father? Moses is our father, right? He's the one that, that began the nation. He's our great patriarch. And Jesus, we reject you. He's saying, no, you're to be sons of your father who is in heaven And you are to reflect his character and his nature. And Jesus said over and over, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I reflect him. I represent him to you. He will say that over and over as he moves on in the book of Matthew. So, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He is the only one to truly emulate. He is the one that we're designed and pattern our lives after, even though many of you have godly fathers. And it is great to emulate them, but only as they emulate Christ as they look like Jesus, as they are the ones who follow the pattern of our Father. Now, when he says that, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, I think it's clear, and already as he's laid out in in the book of Matthew, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, the attitudes, the heart attitudes necessary to be in the kingdom, that doing these things does not turn you into a son. That is, if you love your enemies, that doesn't make you, oh, now you've become, you've made yourself into a son of God. It is what reflects your sonship. This love of enemy is what demonstrates that you have been born of God. First John is very clear. No one who practices sin has been born of God because a seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. It doesn't mean he never sins. It means his pattern of life is not to practice sin. And in First John, it's very clear that that pattern of a lack of sin is to love. So it is very clear from Scripture that those who love the, their enemies are those who have been born of God. But Jesus is making the point that this is the primary means by which you reflect that new birth. You can have all kinds of, I go to church, I read my Bible, I was born in a Christian home, I live in America, therefore I am a son of God. God is my father. No, do you love your enemy? And that is by the definition of love that we gave before. The Holy Spirit empowered delight. To do everything in the pages of scripture to see another person Conform to the image of Christ, regardless of the cost to you, the perceived worthiness of the object of your love, and any reward that you might receive. That is true love. That's what believers do, because that is the love of God. We long to see and delight to do everything Scripture says to 
to give everyone we come in contact with the best opportunity to look like Jesus. And we do it regardless of their worthiness. See, loving our enemies does not make us sons of God. It determines that we have, or it demonstrates that we have his spiritual DNA shaping and molding us into the image of Christ. And it is an absolute standard. No love of enemy, which really means no love of God. Those two are directly equated. You love God, you love your neighbor, your neighbor includes your enemy. First John says, he who says, I do not love my brother whom I have seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Remember, loving your brother extends all the way down to enemy and then back. It is an absolute standard. Christians are those who love, and they are those who love God and those who love even there all the way to their enemies. Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So you love that you might demonstrate that you are in the family of God. But it's not some kind of bare obedience. Well, man, I better love because then, then people might not think I'm in the family of God. No, we delight to do this. It is our precious privilege to love as we have been loved. This love is shed abroad in our hearts. It, it flows out from us. It is to be overflowing through us continually because we delight to be in God's family. We love to have received the, the precious love of God ourselves. And so we pour that out to anyone and everyone all the way up to our enemies and to those who persecute and kill us because we are so delighted to be sons. Romans 8.15 for you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, that close, intimate relationship. The, the relationship that recognizes the, the necessity of God's provision, but also the intimacy of his presence and delights in it. As a little child does to the father that they love, but also the father that they respect and honor and need we love to be loved by God, and therefore we love to love our enemies. It is something that pours out through us. We long to demonstrate the reality of the love of God to those who hate us, hurt us, and would even kill us. That's the reason that we are to love our enemies, so that we might demonstrate sonship. And now, it is almost as though those listening are all, oh, okay, all right, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, that we're supposed to love our enemies, and that we're supposed to do that because that's a reflection of who God is. But prove to us that God actually loves his enemies. And some of you are sitting here this morning saying the same thing. You've read too much Arthur Pink. I love Pink, but he is one who wrote, God hates, he has no love for the unbelieving ever. Ever. There's no, there's no love of God for the sinner. And I just think, unfortunately, there, he was twisted in his understanding of Scripture. So, but you might be saying, prove it, show me. I, I, Jesus does, so I'd love to. And I delight in it, not because I don't like Arthur Pink, but because I, I want to overturn that thought because what happens is we get in the way of the love of God in ways that we shouldn't. There's plenty of ways that the world is not going to understand God's love. We don't need to misunderstand and misrepresent the way that he loves the world. So how does he? What is the example of the love of God for the world? Right? It is, he gives two examples. How does God love sinners? Well, here they are. For, he says, so that you may be sons of your father who was in heaven, for he, the four connects that. You're going to be sons of your father in heaven. Implication, he loves 
the unrighteous. He loves the enemy. How does he do that? For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and unrighteous. At first glance, it's like, well, what is that? That doesn't seem like something so wonderful. Let's, let's explore it just a little bit. So the first proof that God loves unbelievers, his enemies, is that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. But notice it doesn't say that God causes the sun. Look at your text in the New American Standard. What does it say? God causes his sun. Now, isn't that interesting? It's S-U-N. It's not Christ there. So it's the actual physical son, his creation that he made. What he's saying is this. It is not some bare work of, of providence. That is some, some accident of nature that because God causes the sun to rise, he's got to keep the elect alive. He's got to keep believers alive. So, hey, they just benefit kind of naturally from the fact that God is trying to save people. No, no, it is his son. He causes it to do what he wants, and he specifically makes it rise not only on the believer or the, the good but also on the evil, the wicked, the worthless one, the one who sets himself against God. Now, that was all of us to begin with. But as people come to know Christ, the sun is still shining, and it is still shining on the good and on the evil, and it is God's purposeful intent to shine the sun on the evil and the good. It is not accidental. It is not a byproduct. That's what Jesus is proving. He causes, and it is his. Again, I love the way he says, it's, it's my son, he says, God says. I make it do what I want, and I'm specifically causing it to rise on both good and evil. The good and the evil. Now, again, it is not to say that God only hates the wicked, that only, that, and that any good thing that happens to them is an accident or the product of his love for the elect. That is, God has an active love for the vile sinner. That is what Jesus is trying to prove here. The Son is necessary for all life. It is what enables us to continue living. You, you know the statistics. If we were just a couple of thousand miles closer or further away from the sun, maybe tens of thousands, we, we would freeze or we would burn. The sun is perfectly designed to do all that God desires, and it is not, again, some kind of deistic plan that just sets it into motion and it rises on, on righteous people and unrighteous people, whatever. No, it, God purposely has a plan for the way that, that he brings his life through the sun to bear on believers and unbelievers. He uses it to accomplish his purpose. And essentially, so if you ever wonder, well, your love for unbelievers or your love for your enemies is waning, you wonder, well, I wonder why I really need to keep doing this. Just wake up in the morning. And as the sun rises up, you ought to remember that as the sun goes across the sky all day long, God is saying to an unbelieving world, as well as to you, he is saying to both of you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. As the sun, every moment it moves across the sky. And the question is this, will you be the eclipse to the Son of God, shining even on the unbeliever where he's crying out his love? Will you eclipse it by bad theology or by foolish action, refusing to demonstrate a similar love of even the unbeliever and the sinner that God gives? He brings, he's bringing physical life to them. He is sustaining it for them. And all the blessings and benefits that come from living under the sun, and there are many, that he does not remove from the unbeliever purposefully because he could. He could directly, personally punish, even on this earth, every unbeliever, every moment of the day, if he wanted, and he has the right to do so. They're not protected by the love of God in Christ. They're not protected by the righteousness of Christ. So if he wanted, he could personally, and he certainly has the power to do so, bring harm to them every moment of their life on this earth. He doesn't, even though they deserve it. And they go to the beach and enjoy the sun, 
and they enjoy the family that God has given to them, and they, they have all of those good things that God has given purposely because he loves them. He causes his son to rise. By the way, just another reminder, this is not some accidental thing. It is not the sun that rises because of evolutionary processes. It is not the sun that rises because chance brought it about. It is his son. He is sovereign over everything. He designs, holds together, creates, and, and moves everything in the universe. And the fact that it shines on evil and good is purposeful in God. Now, he gives a second illustration. Really, again, the sun's necessary for all life. It brings any enjoyment, any, anything that in life that's able to be experienced as fundamentally requires the sun. We have to have its heat. We, it brings life. But then he gives, it's, it's a little bit different illustration and one that is harder for us to get a hold of and yet would have been very powerful for an agrarian society at the time of Jesus. What does he say? God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and unrighteous. This is, this is even a little bit more specific the sun kind of rises on everybody all the time, everywhere. But now, God, when he, when he brings the rain, when he causes it to rain on a particular field and causes it to rain you know, in certain places, he's doing that purposely. And one of his purposes is to demonstrate his great love for unbelievers. He causes the rain to fall on their field too. Again, not an accidental byproduct. Well, there's a righteous field right next to it, so they're just getting the spillover. You're going to have a whole city that's unrighteous. God, it's still raining. He's still providing them his blessing because he loves them. As long as they are alive on this earth, he is blessing them. Now, it's a, brought a little bit more home to us, right? It hasn't rained for a long time. It rained this morning. We're thankful. But yes, for us, it's like our garden burned up. At first, my garden froze, killed everything, and then I planted again and it burned up. Great. Now, if I was a farmer, I'd be a whole lot more discouraged by that. In fact, the livelihood of my family would be tied to it, and your livelihood too. Not so much in our society. We're able to manufacture food in amazing ways. Now, we're still dependent upon the rain and upon the sun. And there are certainly societies that are much more dependent upon it than we. So this is a very visceral illustration. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.